Hey, good morning, TLC. How are we doing today? All right, so there's a show on uh, True TV. Uh, I think it's True TV called Impractical Jokers. Any of you guys ever seen Impractical? All right, it's like four guys that have been like uh, childhood friends, and their favorite thing to do is try to embarrass each other. And somehow they got uh, a show made about this, and it's pretty amazing and awkward all at the same time, every single episode. One of the things that they do uh, with some frequency on the show is uh, they will make one of the others go and dance in public in front of a person that they choose to try to get the person to stand up and dance with them, but they're not allowed to say anything, okay? This is like my nightmare, all right? But let me show you uh, one clip. Uh, yeah, from you have to get somebody to dance with you, but you're not allowed to say a word. I can't get him to dance with you. You lose. Sal's making his way onto the dance floor. Nervous. That's your guy, Sal. Get your boogie shoes on. Here he goes. Big rise. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Okay, we'll pour that on me. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so here's the deal. Uh, I love the idea of dancing, all right? I think people that can dance are amazing. Uh, When I get to heaven, I hope that God gives me a new body that has rhythm, that can dance, uh, because right now, I hate dancing, okay? I love watching other people do it. I was such a huge fan of the show So You Think You Can Dance, right? Uh, Travis Wall was on that. Uh, was it Alex Wang? Well, Alex Wong. Uh, they got World of Dance with Lake Twins and Yaya, and like they can pop and lock, and I'm like, oh man, I wish I could. I can't. So I'm so, I like, I'm like embarrassed to dance. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, I learned how to do the worm. So I'm not gonna try that now because something will break. Like there's popping, locking, I would be popping, breaking. Uh, I uh, can do the running man, not very well, but I can do the running man, but that, that's like all I got. And those are not good moves, by the way. Like those are, they're not helpful and they're awkward. And here's the thing, is I want to be good. So if I ever like try to dance, like you'll see I'm really trying. Okay, it doesn't look like fun and enjoyable. It looks like, oh dang, that's like, oh, poor dude. Like, what's wrong? Like, he should, okay, so I don't dance. All right, my wife's like, why don't you, who cares? Because she's like, you're one, you, don't, you don't care about anything. You, you're always willing to like make a fool of yourself or do this. Or, and I'm like, yeah, but not dancing. Like, I can't do it. You, you invite me to your wedding. I will be there for that buffet. I will chow down on that chicken, that whatever you, like I will eat that wedding cake, but when the dance floor opens, I will be like, it's time to go. And I will leave, sad, right? So sad. I wish that I didn't care. I wish I could just be a fool and go all in for it. What's one thing that you're afraid of doing because of what you think somebody might say or think about you. Go ahead and turn to the neighbor next to you. Share one thing that you are petrified of having to do in public because of what somebody might say or think about you. That intro will make sense a little bit later, but for now, before we jump into our text, 
which is going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 5. I want to do a quick recap on just the last three weeks of our series. Because the narrator, the author of 1 and 2 Samuel, has been setting up uh, some themes that we need to make sure that we're paying attention to. So three weeks ago, we shared the story of David and Goliath. And we saw that when we have the eyes of God, we don't see a giant man, we see a giant God, right? That's the difference between Saul and David. Saul looked out and he saw a giant warrior that he couldn't defeat. David looked out and he saw a giant God that couldn't be defeated. Now, two weeks ago, we learned that David wanted God more than the throne, but Saul wanted the throne more than he wanted God. Do you remember the little equation that that we gave? God plus nothing equals everything. Everything minus God equals nothing. You, You see, the narrator, the author of 1st and 2nd Samuel is trying to help us understand that there's two different households here, the house of Saul and the house of David. Uh, the house of Saul does what they want to do. They're, they're not interested in obeying God and listening to God in doing what God has asked them to do. The house of David only wants to do what God has said. He, he's willing to put himself out there. The theme is continued in last week's message that Austin gave. The difference between loyalty and lip service is found in which voice you listen to, right? Saul listened to everyone but God. David listened to no one but God. You see the difference again that the author is trying to get us to see the theme between the house of Saul and the house of David? Well, that that theme is going to come back out again today. Now, we're skipping ahead in the story. And so we're going to be here in 2 Samuel chapter 5, but as we skip ahead, I just need to fill in what we've left behind. Last week, as Austin taught, Saul was still king. He was chasing after David to kill David. David was on the run and in hiding, even though he was already anointed by God to be the king of Israel. Saul's still on the throne. Saul's still trying to destroy him, ruin his life. David has an opportunity to kill Saul twice, but he does not listen to the voice of men. He listens to the voice of God, and he says, I will not raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. God will do that. Now, as we fast forward in the story, that's what happens. Saul continues to live his life as the king of Israel, disconnected and separated from God. He doesn't want to do the things that God has asked him to do, and so he goes out into battle at times when God has not uh, said he would go with him. Saul winds up being killed by the Philistines. Sadly, Saul's son, Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, David's best friend, Jonathan, is also killed by the Philistines as well. When that happens, the nation of Israel is divided in half. So the upper northern half, which is often referred to as Israel, the ten tribes of the north, they wind up making Ishbosheth their king. Ishbosheth is one of Saul's sons, but he is a weak leader. Quite honestly, he's just a puppet king for some of Saul's generals who really rule, and they just use Ishbosheth as their puppet. The southern two tribes, called Judah, they make David their king. 
Now, David has already been anointed by God. He's the rightful king of both, but it doesn't happen immediately. In fact, that goes on for seven and a half years. After seven and a half years, Ishbosheth is murdered. The elders of the northern ten tribes recognize that David should be their king. And so they come together to make David king over all of Israel. Okay, that's where we pick up the story. 2 Samuel chapter 5, read with me in verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And Yahweh said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, remember, whenever we see the word Lord, and it's in all uppercase, all right, that's the proper name of God, okay, Yahweh. So sometimes I'll say Lord, sometimes I'll say Yahweh, just so we remember who it is that is being referred to here. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king. He reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. That's when Ishbosheth was the puppet king up north. Okay? And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So here we are, seven and a half years into David's reign as king, and now the entire country is coming back together, where David, the anointed one of God, who's been anointed by God to be king, is now officially recognized. God's already anointed him as king. But now the elders have come, and it says, and they anoint him as king. He's finally in his rightful place. Now, David does not want to be like his predecessor. He wants to be one who follows God, who puts God first in everything, who is willing to go all out in his love and adoration and worship of Yahweh. He wants that to be central to who he is and how he leads. He wants the entire kingdom to understand that he is a, K with a, a sorry, king with a little K, but God is king with a big K. Okay? So, there's a couple things that David's going to do. We don't have time to read through all the text, so I'm just going to kind of walk us through it. The next thing that David does is he takes the city of Jerusalem. The Jebusites uh, were there. Uh, God had promised this land to Israel, but Israel was not faithful to God. And so uh, the Jebusites were still there. And David says, I need to go and take that uh, city. So David does. Uh, he actually uses the internal water shaft. That was how the city could stay fortified without ever having to leave their walls. Uh, he sneaks up in there, and that's how they capture the city. It's not a very big city <clears throat> at the time. But it's a strategic city. It's an important city because it's up uh, high in the hills. And as a result of doing that, uh, David makes Jerusalem the capital of Israel. It's going to be the place where uh, God is worshipped. Eventually the temple is going to be built. And if you come with uh, us a year from now, uh, Lord willing, to Israel, we will get to walk that very shaft that David and his men came and captured the city. Pretty wild, pretty crazy, pretty awesome. Now, David has Jerusalem. The Philistines hear that David has united the entire kingdom of Israel. Uh, they don't want uh, Israel to be there. Uh, they want to uh, annihilate them. So the Philistines come and they set up camp to uh, uh, basically start a war. 
Okay, so they've come to attack Israel. David inquires of God, asks God what he's supposed to do. Should he go into battle? God says, yes, they do. God gives them victory. The text is very clear. It's not because of David's might or David's cunning or Israel's strength. It's because of God, okay? The Philistines regroup. They come back again later and do the same thing. They come with an offense to destroy Israel. God again, or excuse me, David again goes to God, says, God, what am I supposed to do? God gives him very specific instructions. David trusts God, has faith, obeys. God brings about a great victory again. Again, the text makes it very clear. It's not David. It's not his strength, his might, his cutting. It's all because of God. So, now that David is actually beginning to find some military success because of God's help, he wants the nation to know that Yahweh is the one who's supposed to be worshipped. It's not about them giving honor and due to David. It's about God. So he says we need to get the Ark of the Covenant back into, well, not back, but into the capital of Israel. Now, the Ark of the Covenant had been lost uh, about 30 years earlier, okay? Uh, this is Israel before they even had a king. Uh, some other neighboring countries, this time again, it's the Philistines have come to uh, wage war against them. Uh, they don't listen to God. They just decide they're going to go out and fight this battle, but they say, we'll take the Ark of the Covenant with us. Now, the Ark is a really cool box, okay? It's got gold on it. Uh, you can see there's like gold angels over top, and it housed some very important relics from Israel's past. The Ten Commandments that were given to Moses, uh, Aaron's budding staff, uh, um, some manna. What was astounding about the Ark of the Covenant was not what it was made of or how it was made or the things in it. All that stuff was cool and dandy and all that. What was astounding about the Ark of the Covenant is that is where God, at this time in history, chose to place his physical presence. So when Israel decides they're going to go into battle... They just decide, we're going to take God with us. We'll make God come, and God will then have to fight. And God's like, yo, yo, I never said I was going with you. I didn't tell you to do this. So they go into battle, and they get their butts handed to them. The Philistines destroy them, rout them, and the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant, where God's very presence, God's very presence is located. They take the Ark to one of the Philistine cities. They put it in the Temple of Dagon as an offering to Dagon, their God. The next day, the priests uh, to the temple of Dagon walk into the temple, and their big statue of Dagon has fallen off of his pedestal and is laying face down in front of the ark. And the priests are like, huh, that, that's not good. Uh, I wonder what happened. So they pick up the, temp or the, the uh, statue of Dagon, they place it back on his pedestal, they come in the next morning, the statue of Dagon has not only fallen off of his pedestal again, but has shattered into pieces in front of the ark. They say, this is really not good. Uh, we need to get rid of the ark. So they bring it over to a different city in uh, Philistia. Uh, that city has an outbreak of mice and tumors. And the ark gets passed around for seven months. Nobody wants it because everywhere it goes, calamity befalls. Finally, the Philistines are like, get rid of this stupid thing. Bring it back to the Israelites. So they do along with uh, sacrificial statues made of gold that they bring with it. Do you know what they made the statues of? 
tumors and mice. The two things that God had plagued them with. I've never seen a statue of a tumor, but I can't imagine it's very pretty. Either way, they bring this back. Now, the ark then gets brought back to Israel, but it's just sitting at Abinadab's house where he is supposed to kind of take care of it or watch over it, okay? Here's the thing. You can't trifle with God. God had said long before how holy this ark was going to be. Not because there's something special about the gold and the wood, but because there's something special about the presence of God being there. Israel trifled with God. They're like, we'll take God where we want to take God. We'll make God do what we want God to do. It doesn't work like that. The, the Philistines thought the same thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, take, we'll take God and we'll, we'll set him in here and, and we'll make him bow down to our God. And God's like, yeah, yeah it doesn't work like that. And they brought the ark back and there it sat. Saul never goes to get the ark. It just stays there. David now is king and David knows that the ark is of utmost importance because it's where God has chosen to place his presence on earth. David wants the ark to be brought to Jerusalem so that Israel can worship God appropriately. He's got great intentions. It's a beautiful thing. In fact, he's a wonderful leader. He actually goes to all the elders of Israel. He kind of shares with them his plan, why he wants to do it. They're all in agreement. He's basically saying, we want God to be the center. It's not about me. It's not about my kingdom. It's about him and his kingdom. We are Yahweh worshipers. And so they go and David brings 30,000 men, okay, the fighting men of Israel. They are going the nine miles to Abinadab's house. They're going to take the ark back up to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem, and they're going to like celebrate this huge thing. The elders are there. All these men are there. David's like getting his groove on. He's up there. He's like having like, he's like, yo, we're going to worship God today. It'll be awesome. Like, and they put the ark on a cart with two oxen. Here's the problem. David should have paid better attention to the Bible that he had, because if he had paid better attention, he would have known that the only way that God had commanded that the ark ever be moved is by having priests carrying it. David puts it on a cart with a couple of oxen, which is exactly what the Philistines did. David had great intentions, but doing the right thing the wrong way is still doing the wrong thing. The oxen start to walk with the cart and the ark. They stumble. The cart shakes. The ark begins to slide. And Uzzah, a man nearby, reaches out his hand to steady the ark. And as soon as he touches it, instantly he goes dead. David is angry. David is scared and not a good kind of scared, like I'm just freaked out scared. And he says, who can even get near the ark of the Lord. The people there are freaked out. They run away. David is humiliated in front of 30,000 fighting men, the elders of the country. David has to leave the ark at the house of Obed-Edom, goes back to Jerusalem without the presence of God. And we pick up the story here in chapter 6, starting in verse 11. It says, the ark of the Lord, the ark of Yahweh, remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. 
Obed-Edom is taking care of the ark where God's presence resides, and God just is pouring out his blessing on Obed-Edom. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, that's what they called Jerusalem, with rejoicing. When those who were doing what? What are they doing now? Carrying. Ah, so he realized, okay, you can't do the right thing the wrong way. You do the right thing the wrong way, it's doing the wrong thing. David's like, we're going to do the right thing the right way. And so they're carrying the ark, the priests, okay, of the Lord. It says, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf wearing a linen ephod. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds and the sound of trumpets as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. David is passionate about making sure that Israel understands that it is God, it is Yahweh. He is the one that deserves everything, the best of everything, the first of everything, all of your life, your energy, your passion. David's out there dancing. He's taken off the royal robes that he would normally wear. Homeboy's got a tunic on. He is getting at it. It's probably sweaty. He doesn't even care. He's B-boy. I don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's, you know, ballet. I don't know what he did. But he's going crazy. He won't stop. All right? And it's amazing. Every six steps, they kill a bull and a fattened calf. They are saying, God, you get everything. You are worth everything. There is nothing I couldn't give you that you are worth. I can't give you enough. I can't do enough. You get all of me. And that happens the nine miles all the way into Jerusalem. And when he gets into Jerusalem, there is his wife, Michael. She's looking down from a window and she sees David acting a fool in her eyes. And it says she despises him in her heart. Now, did you notice how she was described? We're going to see that happen again in just a second. Drop down with me to verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household. So, He's just had this amazing, probably a couple of days for this all to happen, worshiping with all of his might, giving God all, everything, his best, okay? He comes home now to bless his household, all right? And it says, Michael, daughter of Saul. Did you catch that? Daughter of Saul. This is the second time she's been described as Michael, daughter of Saul. If you were to look back a few chapters, the last time we see Michael, she's actually uh, Michael, wife of David. She's kind of a secondary character, so anytime that she's introduced in the story, they want to remind us who she is. Michael, wife of David, now she is Michael, daughter of Saul. Look what she says. She came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. You know what she's saying? 
My dad would have never acted like that. Shame on you. How dare you remove the royal robes? How dare you not act presidential, kingly? How, how dare you make a fool of yourself dancing around in a tunic in front of these slave girls? My dad would have never acted that way. Look what David says. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But these slave girls you spoke of, uh, excuse me, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. You see what he's saying is, you are still of the house of Saul. You are more worried about appearances and what everybody else thinks. You're listening to the wrong voices. You're worried about your reputation. You are not fully in it for God. You will not bow down to God. You will not say that he is worth your everything. That's what the author is making us acutely aware when three times in a row it describes her as the daughter of Saul. This theme pops up again. Whose house will you be a part of? Are you going to be of the house of Saul that says, you know what? What everybody else thinks, I got to pay attention to that. I can't be all in for God. Michael's like, yo, David, you've become a little bit too much of a Yahweh freak. David says, I will be more undignified than this. You're worried about what the slave girls think. But I don't care what they think. In fact, quite honestly, the slave girls are the ones honoring God way more than you are, Michael. And the text says, and Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, I want to be really sensitive in this moment. I have very close friends that have gone through very long journeys of infertility. I have friends, and I know people in this church right now, and you are walking through some deep valleys with infertility. And we hear something like that statement, and, and very quickly, your mind may go to, is, has God done this to me? Has God, is this a judgment? Is God angry? I need you to hear this, and I need you to hear this as loudly and clearly and gently as I know how. That is not a curse from God on your life. He is not angry with you. The Bible said that he is near to the brokenhearted. He is near you. He knows your longings. But there's also no way for us to engage with this story and not acknowledge what happens here. God is ending the house of Saul. And this is one of the final ways that he does that. Because the house of Saul cared way more about what the world thought, what everybody else thought, what was made sense for them rather than what God asked or what God required. And that is one of the questions that we're left with. Whose house are we going to be a part of? Um, there's kind of three things that I think God wants us to close with tonight, tonight, today. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't go that long, friends. I'm just saying. 
Um, I actually think that this moment brings the text squarely onto our shoulders. When David says, I'll, I'll, I'll get even crazier, I'll get even more undignified. I'll look like a fool to everybody else, even in my own eyes, I don't care. God gets all of me, he gets everything. I think the question that we're left asking is, are you willing to look foolish to worship God with your whole life, to proclaim that you're a follower of Jesus? Are you willing to look foolish in the eyes of all around you in a world that's probably going to judge you and think, like, I can't believe you're dancing at the wedding. You can't dance. I think there's three areas of boldness that God wants TLC to engage with, three areas of boldness that he would like to see us step into, okay? The first one is simply this. Will you become bolder in your worship? Will you become bolder in your worship? I'm talking about your worship here at church. I'm talking about your private worship at home. I'm talking about your worship in public. Are you willing to look a little crazy? Um, listen to uh, the words of uh, the great theologian, Buddy the Elf. The best way to spread Christmas cheer <laughs> is singing loud for all to hear. Some power in that statement. Uh, I knew a guy when I was growing up, uh, my church, Mayfair Bible Church in Flushing, Michigan. Uh, his name was Don Bolas. Uh, Don uh, was a simple guy. Um, loved Jesus. A homeboy could not sing to save his life. I mean, like, I don't know if he ever hit a right note, okay? Uh, but Don was one of the loudest singers in our church. And I remember being so embarrassed for him. In fact, I remember thinking to myself, I'm so glad I'm not his son. That is so embarrassing. Don would let it rip, and he couldn't, he was just terrible, okay? But Don wasn't singing for me. Don wasn't singing for anybody else to hear him. Don loved Jesus, and so Don was willing to sing loudly. Maybe you, you are an amazing vocalist, and so you sing really loudly because you want everybody else to hear you. You maybe need to quiet down. Some of you, though, a lot of you, though, probably don't sing barely at all because, like, I ain't got a voice. I don't want to sing. People are going to make fun of me. People are going to hear me. People are going to think that I'm not. Maybe you're, like, in that point of, like, 15, 16 years old, and, boys, your voice is changing. You're like, I ain't singing out loud because I'm a crack. All right. Well, who are you singing for? Friends, God is worth our worship. For some of you, it means not just your voices. Some of you, it means that you need to do this with your hands. I mean, that's a lot. For some of y'all, that would be a big deal, right? Just, just this, right? Some of you are like, yo, 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 yo I got this down. I, I do this sometimes. Nobody's looking, okay? Maybe y'all is like, okay, I'm going to go like shoulder, like shoulder length, Okay. All right, that's good. All right, some of y'all can get... I don't care what it is. Don't do it for other people to see. Is God worth everything? Is he worth your voice? Is he worth your body? Is he worth your time? Is he worth your energy? Will you become bolder in your worship? Number two, will you become bolder in your evangelism? Who are you sharing your faith with? You know why most of us don't want to talk about our faith? Because we're afraid of what somebody might think about us. Oh, are you a Jesus freak, huh? Oh, you're one of those people. Oh, you're, you don't love people. I know what you're like. And so we're quiet. We just kind of sit back and hope maybe somebody will maybe ask us. And then we're like, okay, 
Man, I'm saying God, I think, wants us to be bolder in our worship of him, in our proclamation of him. Not worried about what anybody's going to say. Now, I'm not saying be a jerk about it. Don't go out with a bullhorn into somebody's ear and start like, I'm saying like, have you though, when's the last time you, you sparked up a spiritual conversation with somebody? Tried to share your faith. Invited them to church. Um, there's a couple that goes to our church. Uh, Dan and Chris, they were on vacation last week in Florida. Down there with a few of their friends. They had a great time. They're flying back. Uh, Dan is sitting on the aisle. Uh, his wife, Chris, she's sitting in the middle seat. And then the big old homeboy came and sat right next to him. Big guy. Okay, she's like... But one of the things that they always do is they say, all right, Lord, we're willing to have a conversation if you want us to have a conversation. So she prayed about that. And then this guy came and sat next to her. And so she's like, all right, I'll strike up a conversation, strikes up a conversation, asking a little bit about him. He's sharing a little bit about his life, this, that, and the other, flying back to Chicago. Conversation kind of ends. She's like, all right, Lord, I, I did. All along, she'd planned on, she's like, I got this Bible study that I got to get finished up because I'm coming back. I got to be like ready for it. So she pulls out her Bible study materials, starts working on it. The guy leans over and says, oh, are you a teacher? Because she's got the book out. She's like, no, no, I'm not a teacher, but I'm a, I'm a Christian. And I was like doing this Bible study. He's like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. And she's like, well, yeah, do you, do you have like faith? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Thank you. So they start to have a little bit of uh, a more of a deeper talk. He asks her a couple questions, and then she goes in for the, like, you can't go back from this question. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, one of those questions, like, one of those, you know, moments in the conversation, you're like, if I say this, I can't go back. She went all in. She's like, well, yes, actually, I'm a Christian. Would you like to hear about Jesus and what he's done in my life? Now, you know what that's like when you're in a plane, right? All right, this ain't first class. This is somebody's seats right here, another seat's right here. Everybody around you can understand, hear the conversation. People hitting like hear through on their iPad, on their iPad like, oh, what's going on over there? He says, yes, I would. I'd like to hear. She's like, awesome. Taps her husband and says, he wants to hear a little bit more about Jesus. Well, uh, one of the things that Chris knew is Dan always has in his pocket, uh, a little booklet that's a tool he uses to share the gospel. So she didn't have hers on her. Dan did. Taps Dan. It's like tag team wrestling. Tapped him in. He pulled that thing out. He's like, well, would you like me to share about how you could find Christ? And the dude's like, yeah. Dan shares the gospel with this guy. This guy prays to receive Christ on an airplane. All right? Flying back. That's insane. God saves people in some weird spots. You never know what somebody's going through. You never know what a conversation will lead to if you're willing to be obedient and step out into it. I've had the privilege of helping lead someone to Christ at a Thai restaurant, at a, at a bar. You never know what God's up to. Will you be willing to step out? Man, I'm just telling you, friends, you don't know what someone in your life might be going through. They're just waiting for someone to ask them to have a conversation. I think God wants us to be bolder in our worship and he wants to be bolder in our evangelism. And the last thing is I think God wants us to be bolder in our obedience. All right, so here's the deal. Uh, we've got two gals that are going to be getting baptized this morning. I'm super excited, Nina and Kendall. Uh, they have been preparing uh, for this for the last few weeks. 
Uh, this was something that they wanted to do. So we're like, all right, cool. We'll, we'll make a baptismal service uh, for today. Um, they're going to be sharing their stories with us. And uh, I woke up Saturday, no joke, yesterday. And when I woke up, I just felt like the Spirit say, uh, Torn, you can't teach this message without giving people an opportunity to do spontaneous baptism. To go public. To say, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care what people are going to say about me. I'm in for Jesus, and I need the world to know that, and I need to stand up. Look, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have given your life to Jesus, believing in his death and resurrection, there is nothing that should be standing in the way of you being baptized. If you've been baptized, awesome. Praise God. Kudos on your obedience. If you've not, I think today is probably the day. Now, this is not a, I'm not, I mean, trying to drop any manipulation on anybody. I'm not trying to get you to do something. But if you know Jesus is talking to you right now, then in just a minute, after I'm done praying, I think you need to walk with me out the back doors. And we've got some folks out there that will talk to you about baptism and get you ready. We got shorts for you to wear, shirts for you. We just went and got a whole bunch more towels because we ran through all the ones that we had. I think we've had 18 people get baptized this morning already. Some of y'all are right now freaking out because your heart is doing this and you're trying to not let anybody see. Listen to the Spirit. But I do believe if you are a follower of Jesus, that is your next step of obedience. So, uh, I'm going to pray that the two are going to get baptized first. We're going to sing a song. They're going to share their testimonies. They're going to get baptized. We're going to keep uh, worshiping together. And uh, you guys are going to see folks keep walking into that tub. And uh, I'm going to ask them a couple questions. You won't even hear it. And they're going to get baptized. And y'all are going to cheer like crazy right in between like a lyric. And it's going to be amazing. And we're going to worship with our whole hearts and our whole minds and our, our whole bodies this morning because God is worth it. He's absolutely worth it. So Jesus, we just invite you into this time, into this space. Uh, Jesus, you know um, this is spontaneous for us, but it's not for you. You knew this day was coming. You knew what you were going to tell me yesterday. Uh, you knew that uh, Nina and Kendall um, were going to uh, uh, ask us for a baptismal service so that we would have this even opportunity. And you knew that there's some folks that today is going to be the day that they say yes to stepping into the waters, to proclaiming their faith, that they are yours fully and wholly. And they're going to step out and tell the world that. And Jesus, we can't wait to celebrate that with you. Let it be from our hearts, not for anybody else not for anybody else, but for you. We want to be a part of the house of David, not the house of Saul, who gives our whole life, everything to you. You are so worthy, Jesus, because you gave your whole life for us. Thank you. It's in your name we pray all these things. Amen.